What is up, guys? Welcome back to Startup Mindset's podcast. This is episode 38, I believe. Super honored to have this guy on the show. Uh, and shout out to Steve for connecting with me and, you know, recommending Rich. Rich is a serial entrepreneur, and currently he is the founder of Fathom.video. Uh, really interesting company. They just got um, backed by Zoom Fund, uh, Zoom Apps Fund, and uh, they're doing a lot of great things. But Rich, man, ha- happy to have you here, and thanks for coming in from Miami. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, how are you doing today, man? Like, how's the weather? How's life? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm I'm doing that kind of you know classic nomadic lifestyle thing ever since the the pandemic. So, uh, you know, I, as I was saying, I'm kind of notionally from San Francisco. Been there 15 years done a couple of startups, but it's been interesting to explore the rest of America. I got to say that, you know, it has a lot to offer. Totally. Yeah. I mean, what, uh, I mean, what, what kind of sparked that nomadic lifestyle, if you don't mind me asking? Sure. I mean, you know, so we started, we started Fathom about a year ago. Uh, before that I started this company called User Voice back in 2008. Uh, and before that I was working on a company called Kiko, which was in the first batch of Y Combinator. Fathom, uh, sorry, user way started off as remote and then we got an office. And I think that was one of the things I kind of regretted because then I found myself spending a lot of time going to the office. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, we started Fathom in the middle of the pandemic. So obviously we were going to start remote, but I had every intention of like, we should stay remote one for my own personal kind of like, you know, I think personally, it's just very nice to be able to go anywhere and work from anywhere. But two, I actually think it's going to be a huge, huge hiring advantage here in the near future. Um, so that's yeah. kind of how it got started. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, um, I guess, remote work is better than traditional in-office work? And I, I know there's, you know, this could open up a can of worms here, but, <laughs> but uh, me as a millennial, I think that I guess a hybrid option of being able to have the flexibility is, is definitely, um, you know, a, t- a key aspect of, of any tech job. But what do you, what do you, what do you say, man, since your, your company kind of falls in, to the placemat of uh, remote work. Yeah, I mean, obviously everything's a trade-off, but I, you know, I think, especially if you can build it from the ground up as remote, I think you have a lot of inbuilt advantages, especially like I said, when it comes to hiring. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people that are frustrated with remote are really frustrated with companies that never really figured out how to be remote. And you really have to be really thoughtful and really intentional. You have to be really good at having a lot of good asynchronous processes, right? Because a lot of companies that have an office just rely on kind of ambient, you know, information yeah. uh, sharing, right? That that, and so you, you can't have that, right? Like we have to be very intentional about making Slack rooms for all the right things and automations that notify the right people and having really good processes and, you know, even down to things like I have a lot of my team is in North Carolina, actually all in Raleigh, oh, and. Wow. I'm very clear with them. They're like, Hey, can we get like an office together? And I was like, no, you can absolutely not get a co-working space together. Because <laughs> now you will create like inside jokes within you guys. Right. And like, that's, that will start eroding the culture. Well, um, yeah. Hey, hey you, you, I'm, I'm sure everyone, including yourself, you know, you save rent money, right. Or like office space. Yeah. It, you, you certainly save rent money though. I think you generally offset that by, you know, you usually have like a quarterly offsite thing, which is, usually pretty expensive, right? So like you save some <laughs> totally. money, but, but you don't save as much money as I think you necessarily think you will, right? Because you, you do still need to have some team ceremonies. Um, but I just think that what's going to happen soon here is I think hybrid doesn't necessarily work very well, right? Like we investigated this a lot in my last company and mm-hmm. it's just hard to have people in office and people not in the office and not have those people that are not in the office get disadvantaged, right? Very subtly, Right. Uh, we humans are just always going to bias towards the humans we can see in front of us. And so I think it's just really hard to scale that. And I really think, you know, next spring, there's going to be a real, you know, if you look at all the surveys that come out that every, everyone's done, you know, all the employees at these major you know, tech companies, about a third of them want to stay remote. A third of them want to go back to fully, uh, fully in the office. And yeah. two thirds want to be hybrid. That means no matter what they choose, <laughs> two thirds of their people are going to be unhappy. Right. And so I, you know, I'm really excited for us to, you know, you should be, be hiring great engineers spring of next year that want to work at a place that was built from the ground up to be an awesome remote culture. Totally, man. Yeah. I, I, uh, there's, it's really hard to say what's right or what's not, but it's all trade off. Yeah. Right. Uh, getting into your company, uh, can you explain to us what Fathom is and, you know, how is it different from, well, on my way back home, I, I, 
was listening to the radio and heard an ad for otter.ai but I don't know what that they are. And they were saying like, it was like, if you ever have zoom calls or meet calls and they, they take notes for you, but what is fathom in uh, your eyes and in the future, what do you see it being? Yeah. So, I mean, well, very briefly. So before fathom had this company called user voice and we were kind of a platform for product feedback in our, you know, we worked with a number of folks. We were probably, if you ever see like a feedback tab on the side of a website, that was something we originally innovated many, many years ago. And the whole goal of that company is to try to understand who your customers are and what they're saying and what they want you to improve about your product. And, you know, it was interesting. If I go back about 18 months, I was still at user voice and I was doing a lot of new product development, kind of, you know, much like an early stage founder would. Right. And I was doing a ton of customer calls and like user research calls. I think I did 300 calls in the first six weeks of last year. Right. I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> 15, yeah, like 15 to 30 minute, like, you know, you kind of deep dive in people's problems. And, you know, I, I think all of us that they're on Zoom calls, especially on ones where it's like you're with a customer, you're with a prospect, you're doing some research, and you're trying to take notes, kind of know how, how like, painful that process is. But when you do 306 oh, wow, yeah. six weeks, it's very clear that like it really sucks to try to talk to someone and try to like hurriedly type notes at the same time. Uh, and then, you know, like those notes don't really make any sense. So after the call is over, you've got to go in there and clean them up again really quickly while you still remember kind of like what's going on. Uh, and, you know, I, I did that for 300 calls last year and did that whole process. What I found was, you know, two weeks after I had the call, I still didn't really remember like important nuance from that call. Maybe even more importantly, when I try to share those notes or those insights with my team, it kind of completely fell flat compared to me hearing it firsthand from the customer themselves. And so, that was kind of the, the genesis for Fathom, which is an app for Zoom, which is why we kind of got the Zoom apps funding, where we kind of real-time record and real-time transcribe your Zoom calls. But the key thing we do is we give you this almost like soundboard kind of panel, right? Almost like a Star Trek panel. <laughs> and so instead of, you know, I hear something interesting on the call, instead of me trying to hurriedly type up notes, I have a number of buttons in my app that say like insight or product feedback or technical question. And I just click that button whether I hear something noteworthy. And then Fathom goes through the part, goes through the, the, the process of figuring out like, okay, when did this part of the call start? When did this part of this call end? And kind of make automatically like highlight clips from the call. And so what happens is as soon as the call is over, instead of me trying to clean up notes, I have like this call recording within about five seconds. It's fully transcribed. But most importantly, I've got the 15% of the call that was noteworthy. And I can immediately hmm. write up my notes. I can jump back to those moments write up my notes with the full clarity of the full thing. Uh, or what's really cool is I can, you know, take that clip and send it to my team, right? Like, oh, here's a, here's a piece of product feedback. Boom, here's a 30 second clip that I can drop into Slack and share with my team. And so oh, that's, wow. that's the whole idea. The whole idea of Fathom is like, you know, let's make it less stressful to do a Zoom call because you don't have to, you don't have to remember everything, right? Like yeah. if you missed something, <laughs> you've got perfect recall on it. You can just jump back to it and listen to it again, write up your notes, share it with your team, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's, I, I can see that, you know, being very useful. I think uh, when I was a university student, um, I, I mean, it was, I was a student back with uh, in-person lectures, but, you know, with, uh, I guess, uh, last year seeing students have to do uh, online classes and, you know, having to write notes while they look at a screen and, you know, it's, it's such a such a big hassle. But I think, you know, that, that, that problem that you guys are going after is really a, uh, you know, something that, that, that can be, I don't want to just say solved, but uh, we could, I mean, everyone can just be more efficient with, with the, you, you know, online work and meetings, et cetera. So that's really cool. Um, getting into, uh, I guess, your operating style. Uh, we, we had previously talked about you, you know, your first company that you created, um, you were couch surfing and you were, you know, you, you had brought up like this lifestyle of, you would work until you fell asleep uh, with the laptop on you. And then, you know, next day you'd get back to work. Um, I like this example, but uh, if you could tell us like a little bit, what, what do you think makes you hardwired to really have this passion for creating software or just tech in general? Where do you think that came from? Good question. I mean, I think even as a kid, I love to just build things and make, you know, I made, you know, I remember when I was, 13 or 14, I was making websites for like PlayStation sheet codes. And I remember <laughs> my parents being very confused at why I was getting $400 checks in the mail every week. Um, 
so you know from a very yeah. early age, and i think i also think i remember like first grade i used to sell other kids in the class like drawings and mazes that i drew right so i think there is like a you know i just like building things legos you name it that the i kind of was very fortunate to grow up with uh and i was also very fortunate i think probably the thing i was most fortunate to grow up with is my parents were divorced so i uh you know a father and a stepfather and both of the, them were entrepreneurs and so I really grew up with entrepreneurship being like the default, if that makes sense, right? And so, yeah, I think a lot of people look at entrepreneurship and they say, oh, it looks really scary and risky. And I'm like, oh, I, it just, I just thought that's what you did, <laughs> right? Man, that's so, cool. <laughs> I'm very, very lucky in that regard, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that story. I think, um, you know, a lot of people I've kind of been around and, and talked to, it was something a little bit from childhood that catalyzed the you know, the, the yearning for uh, just creating no, business on your own, right? Exactly. Though I, I will say, I think I was also very fortunate not to lose that because I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, which, you know, when I was growing up was, you know, it's a little more entrepreneurial now, but was not very entrepreneurial, right? At least not from a tech perspective. <laughs> sure. And, you know, I went through college and high school, kept trying to drag my friends into doing, you know, dumb startup ideas with me. And no one really wanted to go for it because not everyone grew up with, you know, essentially two parents that, that were entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And I think I was very fortunate that I kind of fell into a group of people in that I ended up kind of like joining a company in the first batch of Y Combinator, uh, which was up in Cambridge at that time. And yeah, I think that was right at the point where I was about to give up on startups and be like, well, I guess it just doesn't work. No one else wants to do it. Oh man. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I was about to give up on it. And then I found this, this group of people doing you know, really cool startups out of the Y Combinator office in Boston. Uh, ours wasn't very famous, uh, but we shared an office with Reddit, which obviously is a little more famous and really fell in with this amazing group of entrepreneurs who I've now known, have been fortunate enough to know everybody for the last 15 years. And, you know, they say you're the average of your friends. And so it really yeah, is helpful yeah, to have that community around you of people that are also struggling and pushing and learning and innovating. Most definitely. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, that's pretty incredible. You know, you don't, we don't meet too many people from YC number one. And I guess maybe you brag about that sometimes, but I mean, that's super awesome. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you were part of YC again, uh, last or this year, right? Like winner of uh, this year. Yeah. Yeah. Fathom is a, is a YC winner 21 company. How did, um, your first kind of go around? I know you weren't necessarily like the creator of the last company. Um, or I mean, the original creator, right? But you, you were there in, you know, kind of the early stages. Um, how, how has like the experience uh, been different from a, I guess, like a mentorship or like a, well, I guess just a, how is it different? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, you're, I better, wasn't, you yeah, know, but, cooler. I, yeah, I, I wasn't a founder on the company Kiko that went through that first batch of Y Combinator. That was Justin Conner, Emmett Shear, who went on to do Twitch. Uh, obviously another great company. Uh, a funny story out of that, actually, I, the reason I joined that team is because I saw their TechCrunch post and I saw their product and I just emailed them out of the blue and told them the product was really horrible, like looking design-wise. I was like, is it technically a marvel, but design-wise terrible? And then I said, I'll help you with this, right? And kind of push my way onto that team, uh, which is, you know, I think one of the one of the better happy outcomes of my life, right? It's just cold cold emails can can go a long way. Wow. Uh, but yeah, so it was interesting, you know, the, I think that that batch, there was seven or eight companies and there's really three of them that share the YC office in Cambridge, you know, and then fast forward to this past batch of winter 21, where I think there was 357 companies. It was all remote. And wow. Yeah. You know, honestly, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a trade-off, right? Like, you know, you go back to the first batch of Y Combinator, you don't get any points in the, in the world for going through Y Combinator because no one knows what it is. <laughs> now it's like, you know, going through Y Combinator is a well-known thing. It certainly helps with recruiting. It helps with fundraising. It helps with, you know, a whole bunch of stuff, right? In terms of just like social accreditation type thing. Um, you know, the upside is like, maybe it was a little more one-to-one, -one, but I honestly think at this point now, YC is a, is it, you know, you think about it, it's really, I call it like a union for startups in some ways. Right. Wow. Like, that's great. Great. great co co kind of like collectively bargaining, right? Like, you know, raising money 10 years ago and raising money now is completely different. You know, it used to be you'd walk into an investor meeting and they'd be like, they'd be like, yeah, who the hell are you? Right. And you're like, oh, do you look at my stuff? No. Like, you know, and now the table's going to turn and all the investors are, you know, super founder friendly and that's the way to go. And part of that's just the economics of startups. And part of that is things like Y Combinator almost unionizing all the startups and be saying, 
mm-hmm. you know, investors that are bad actors are now going to be basically held to task, right? Because sure. okay, if you if you screw over enough startups in, in Y Combinator, you will get basically blacklisted, right? Like you know, you there's an internal yeah. <laughs> investor database, right? So yeah. stuff like that. So you know, if so, I think in some ways that part's different. Obviously, remote versus in person is a huge difference, right? It's a little bit harder to. It's kind of like remote companies versus in person company, right? Like. Mm-hmm. You can do all the same things. In fact, I think there's a lot of folks that thought you can actually, it could be more efficient with the remote uh, version of YC because you don't have the commute time, right? Like driving yeah, from San true. Francisco down to Mountain View is like an hour and a half. That's that's not a great use of your time, <laughs> but you have to be more intentional about it, right? Like trying to build those relationships with people in your batch, you have to be like diligent and uh, and almost disciplined about outreach and building connections. Versus if you're just all in the same room, you know, three times sure. a week, it happens sure. kind of organically, right? So, right, uh, you know, but but yeah, it's a it's a fantastic experience and a fantastic opportunity, and you know, it's kind uh-huh. of funny. I was I joked I was YC adjacent for 15 years because I just know so many people from being in their own batch, but now I'm actually finally a YC official, which is nice. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah, congrats. Uh, if you could maybe just describe that energy back in 2005, like I mean. If I'm asking you to remember something that's over a decade ago, and I wouldn't even remember what 2005 was like, but uh, I just, well, it, it is funny how everything kind of goes in cycles, right? And you know, I graduated, I graduated computer science, North Carolina State, 2003, and I remember them just, you know, everyone being kind of like, you know, you poor suckers, right? Because when you started college. 99% of you had jobs at graduation day. Oh, now wow. only yeah. 20% of you have jobs at graduation day, right? And I remember even similarly, we worked in Boston, but everyone then moved to California because California was just, you know, 10 to 100x better environment for startups back then. Probably still is. But still, I showed up in California in 2006 and you'd walk around, you know, Soma, which is now kind of like the tech hub of San uh-huh. Francisco. And it was a ghost town and people would be like, oh, you should have been here five years ago. It was amazing. It's, oh, a, shame yeah, you, it's, true. it's a shame you missed it. Right. You know, <laughs> little do they know, right. Like that was just the, the opening act. Right. And, and fast forward five years from 2006 and it's, you know, it, it's pretty bananas and fast forward another five years and it's just ridiculous. Right. So, you know, it, I will right. say one thing that right. is interesting is I like, if I think back to all the people in 2006 that were doing a thing, they're doing a startup thing, you know, they were all doing it for quote unquote, like the right reasons, uh, hmm, you know, yeah. in terms of like everyone there really wasn't there to be famous. They weren't there to make money. They were there because they just like building things. Right. And they just, they were generally building things that they wanted to exist in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there was a, there was a, there was an apartment building in North beach of San Francisco, affectionately called the Y scraper. And like all the early YC companies worked out of it. And it was like Twitch and Dropbox and Weebly and Scribd and Sobni Reddit and on and on and on. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just an amazing kind of environment that I'm not sure you could rebuild again. If you fast forward now more recently, it's harder to find that. Right. Because you now have still people that are doing it for the right reasons, but you also have all the people that are doing it, you know, to for the same cool. reasons that, to yeah. be cool. Like, I mean, you know, I had a computer science in 1999 so when I started to go to school. And I think 85% of the people in my computer science classes were there because someone said, you know, programming would be a, a good career for you, right? They'd yeah. never written a line of code before college in their lives. Like I was writing code when I was 12, right? So I think there's a big difference between <laughs> folks who write, this is their passion versus this is their career. And it's totally fine if it's your career, right? But I think that the key thing is like, it's harder now to find the pockets of people that are doing it because they would do it for free sort of thing. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a key element of entrepreneurship, right? Like uh, doing something, I, I mean, at the, at its core, you know, creating a com- creating something just something right like doesn't have to be a company it could be like a tiny product um i guess involved involves tech uh creating something is is essentially the key the, the you know how you how any company starts right you start really small you create something and you you know you get feedback you iterate and iterate and i guess it just starts with something so i think that's and you can't really get paid to create something at yeah, the beginning, you I, mean, know? I mean, you, you could certainly be thoughtful about how it's eventually going to make you money, and you probably should be thoughtful about that. But I do think it's it, it, there's always a stark contrast between the people that led their pitch with, you know, this is an X billion dollar market, or I'm going to make a Y doing this thing, right? That, that's a form of entrepreneurship, right? And I don't want to yeah. like shit on it, but like I think the 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 creative stuff, entrepreneurship that I've seen lead to the greatest outcomes, 
right? The most outsized outcomes where people were just like, I have this problem or I'm really familiar with this problem. And I just think this problem needs to be solved. And I think I can solve it. And it was just that simple, right? <laughs> and then everyone comes in 10 years later after you're successful and writes this like really like sweeping vision statement, right? But no one had the vision. No one has any vision statements in the beginning, right? Everyone just has an itch they want to scratch, whether it's their own or someone else's. Um, and so I think that's generally the, the, the most purest form of creative building, you know, early stage startup. Yeah, man, I, I have to echo you there. Uh, you know, another thing that I'd love to talk about is your transition from being an engineer to getting into design. And I think, uh, you know, design doesn't get enough uh, spotlight when it comes to, uh, I guess, just, um, or at least it it doesn't as much as being an engineer, getting a, you know, computer science degree and becoming a software engineer, right? Like, what are you, uh, can you take me through that, that um, switch from, you know, engineering to designing products? Sure. Um, you know, it's one of those things where I think, you know, being a great designer is awesome. Being a great engineer is awesome. If you can, in some ways I do both decently well, right. I'm probably not amazing at either, but actually in some ways, sometimes it's like, it's almost like a, you know, Da Vinci thing being multidisciplinary is actually really valuable as a startup founder. Right. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I've benefited the most over the last 10 years of running user voice was not only did I go from being kind of engineer designer, but I've run a sales team and run a marketing team. And, you know, now I'm very multidisciplinary, but if you go back to kind of engineering versus design, I, you know, it's, I think design is something, I definitely think there's an eye for it. Right. Um, yeah. Some people just, uh, you know, for me, it was always just a thing where I was like, I, I look at something and every time I look at something, I think about like, why is it like this? Like, why is it shaped this way? Why is it shaped a different way? And so I think there is a kind of a design mindset that some people are fortunate like myself to kind of somehow innately have. I don't know where it comes from. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe it was all those, you know, Legos and building laptops as a kid. I'm not sure. Um, but I knew it was always something that really fascinated me. I, I do remember one point thinking this much earlier in my career after college, like I'm a decent programmer, but I'm a classic like founder programmer, right? Like I, I get, <laughs> it's 80% right and 20% of the time, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but it's not really like something you want to depend on. It's a little fast and loose. Uh, and I remember my last company, they used to always love to do engineering offsets where they pull up my code, my old code as an example of what not to do. Um, oh, man, but I think it, it's kind of brutal. It's kind of funny though. Uh, but I do think there is, you know, I remember at one point thinking like, hmm, I think engineering will get like outsourced before design because a lot of engineering tasks can, you can write a test case to it. If you can write a test case to it, if you can control, if you can like, empirically test the output of the thing, it's much easier to kind of outsource the, you know, the creation of the thing. And it's much harder. There's no unit test for design per se uh, yet. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll come up with one. And so it just felt like something that was more defensible and more differentiated in some ways. Was there so like a, you know, was there, I mean, I'm not sure how difficult it is to, you know, switch from engineering to design or just any discipline. Right. But like for you, was that, you know, challenging at first, you know, like trying to, I guess, use new tools. Like, I mean, I guess sketch wasn't really back. What was the, the design tool that y'all, y'all started using? Well, back, it, back well in the day? it's, I mean, it's funny. I think it's much easier to go from being an engineer to being a designer than vice versa. Right. Hmm. Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I used to design by opening up like a live CSS editor and just literally putting down HTML and just writing CSS until it all kind of fit. Um, Oh, wow. I to this day to this day don't know how to use Photoshop. Uh, when we were starting Fathom, <laughs> and I was kind of getting back into doing design stuff again. I'm not kidding you. I use Google Slides to prototype stuff. Like you go look at Fathom.video. Most of that, like we had some outside outsourced uh, design help that helped with maybe some of the visual polish. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the core interactions I literally designed in freaking Google Slides. Right. Uh, I've since been enlightened to use Figma, and now I love Figma. But, uh, but honestly, it's way easier, you know, to learning design stuff, you know, like I said, it can, you can just draw boxes and arrows, right? I think the, the core right. design to me is not visual, it's, it's functional. It's how do I, what is the optimal way to walk you through a process uh, with software? Wow. And so you can do that with a whiteboard, you can do that with Figma, you can do it with Google Slides, right? Uh, that transition, I think, is actually much easier than trying to learn how to program because there's just a whole body of knowledge you need to even get started there that takes mm -hmm. years to learn. So. Yeah. I think if you're going to be a design engineer, be a engineer first and 
design second. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Um, so, I, I mean, another thing we could jump into really quick is uh, you are you 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 were like the creator of one company, you know, earlier in your career, and now you're doing a a new company. Um, is there anything differently that you do or operate? Is there anything that you've learned from your you know first go around or early go arounds to to now and how you approach uh, solving problems or building teams and yeah that's a great question that's a great question how many more hours do we have to answer, <laughs> me to answer this question I mean it would be easier if I could I'm tell sorry, you the things I actually I actually did the same from the first one the second one right um, certainly the second one is a lot more fun. <laughs> if I can recommend anything, I would say you should always do your second start, second startup, right? After having a, at least some, some modicum of success in your first one, uh, it, it feels like a completely different game. I describe it often as like going back and playing an old video game that you yeah. used to play. You don't remember where everything is, but you kind of have like a leg up because you've beat it before, right? And you're like, I know the good oh, sword true. is in that castle true. and the good shield is in that dungeon. And, you know, like I remember how some of these things work and, you know, it's really night day, you know, user voice, my company I started in 2008, I had to, you know, beg, borrow and steal to find co-founders. I had to beg, borrow and steal to find engineers. I had to, you know, we were, I literally lived on a couch for six months, you know, almost, you know, not intentionally, right? It's not what I wanted to be doing, but it was like what I needed to do because we didn't have any money. Uh, you know, I started off really focused on a product and then tried to find a team and then try to find a market. Now we kind of, I always think you do the reverse, right? You find a market, you find a team, you build a product. Um, yeah, so there, you know, that, that first time around looks like a lot of people's first time around, right? Like it's scrappy, it's chaotic, it's stressful. Um, second time around, you know, part of this is the, the difference between starting a company in 2008 and 2020, right? Like yeah. you've got, you know, it's a more founder-friendly universe now to a certain degree. But uh, really the, the benefit second time around is, don't have to beg, barn, steal to find, find co-founders. Like you kind of know, you, you have a network, right? Same thing for fundraising. You have a network of people that know your work and know your worth and know your reputation, know your character and makes that whole process so much easier. Uh, and hiring is great. I mean, the biggest, honestly, the biggest superpower here is I started Fathom with four of the best engineers I've ever worked with, right? From day one and, and you know, money in the bank from day one. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's white years beyond, you know, that it took me th probably two and a half to three years to get to that point in user voice time. Uh, yeah. And, you know, yeah. having a good engineering team like I have feels like I put on, I feel like I put on an Iron Man suit every day, right? Awesome. Like <laughs> I, 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 by myself, am this sad, weak human, but if I put on this suit of amazing engineering talent on our team, we do amazing things together. And that part is, yeah. Yeah. I, I wish everyone could have that experience, <laughs> but, uh, the, that thing is is probably the biggest differentiator between number one and number two. Yeah, man. I, I think that, you know, I, I like every, there's something about me. Like I, I tend to think about the last 10 years of technology quite often since uh, not only just being from San Francisco, but um, just noticing how the world is changing. And I guess like when I was in venture capital, I'd see these ideas and their projected, um, I guess, revenue, but also like the projected, uh, new users that they would have and just how much of a, you know, impact and change on the world that, you know, one tiny piece of uh, tech, I mean, not, not like one idea can actually literally change the world. And that is uh, quite mind boggling. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, they don't have to be very complicated ideas, right? Like, I mean, again, I can think back to the start of everyone's, you know, the wisecraper story, right? Like mm -hmm. Dropbox and, and Twitch. And right? I mean, I can think back to the genesis of all of those big companies and they were all simple ideas, right? Like, you know, sure. I, Drew from Dropbox tells the story. He just like was frustrated with like, I think it was like, there were some I think it was SAT papers or there's some things. He's like, <laughs> I can't get them on my laptop. I can't just, I just, why is there not an obvious like backup sync, right? Like obvious, well-working backup sync turns out as a multi-billion dollar idea, right? By itself. So um, yeah, just having a, a good kernel to start with is, is all you need. What, uh, what do you find hard about, I guess, this process, right? Like, you, you know, you had... You had said, mentioned that uh, it took two and a half years to get to, I guess, uh, I guess a significant milestone in funding and, I guess, uh, also business side of things. Um, what is the, uh, what, do you, what do you find difficult about, is, is the engineering side difficult? Is like, I mean, I know this stuff is innately difficult for anyone, but uh, 
Uh, I mean, the thing that has show the thing that is harder in 2020, right? Like for the most part, fundraising is easier. Even if I think you're, even if you're a first time founder, it's, I think it's easier than it used to be. Um, you know, but what's harder is it's now harder to find engineering talent, right? Because there's more competition for it. And what I think is even harder than that is the most part is that, you know, it's really hard to get oxygen. It's really hard to get, get drive awareness of your product. It's really like, you know, it used to be you build a product, you're probably one of three people launching a product that month, right? In the SaaS business. And you, you always get your, you know, you launch it, you can get a TechCrunch post just for launching a cool thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you get a thousand people, 5,000 people show up your website, like boom, right? Now it's like, you can't, no one you can get TechCrunch to write about them or very few. You got to really know some someone and pull some strengths. It's really hard to get noticed. If you do get noticed, you're one of, 50 things that they know that user noticed that week. Right. Mm, so, yeah. you know, the one piece of advice, the other, I think depending on what you're doing and obviously if you're a first time founder, maybe like, you know, the whole like launch early and often thing still applies. But one of the things we did do differently for this time around is we launched late. Like we literally were in development for a year and we had a small closed beta with users, but we launched late uh, by a startup and even by Y Combinator standards. And that was intentional because I kind of felt like, you get one crack to make an impression with the user. And we're building a product that is kind of mission critical, right? If you're hiring, if you're, you know, if, if you're hiring my, my, my app, right, to backstop your note-taking process and record your calls in real time, it's got to work every time. And it can't interfere with your Zoom call, right? With your, the meeting you have with your prospect or customer. So like, it needs to be flawless because it's such a, you know, critical real-time environment, right? Mm-hmm. And so- yeah. You know, so it was very intentional on our part to be like, look, we're going to raise money. We're going to, you know, build a bigger team than most people would have, you know, pre-traction, right? And we can thankfully afford to do that because we've got, you know, enough of a reputation of, of having built things before. Um, but we know we got to build something really good. So we launch, people are really blown away by it. And because you only get, you know, because the oxygen is so, so scarce. Yeah, man, I think that's another one last or another really interesting thing you bring up with like you know oxygen being so scarce right like uh i i mean do you when when uh i mean is that a, i mean well you know for instance that could be in a product of a uh you know low funding or low motivation um i mean either from the team or you or like uh external factors too as well um uh what do you do you, you know when when this t- stuff becomes internally difficult if it ever does for you on that, <laughs> what do you think gets you over the hump or like what gets you to uh keep the keep the ball rolling um when it's internally difficult and hard to you know be motivated perhaps i think you, i think you almost just have to almost have to even like borderline irrationally believe in yourself and your mm-hmm. vision and your like the problem you're you're solving right i think you know i with user voice, my first company, I was actually kind of timid at times and was a little like, hmm, are we on the right path? I'm not so sure. And I think the most successful people I saw back then were almost like, you know, they had no right to be as confident as they were, right? They were often 23, 24, 25 years old, but they were just, you know, 100% convinced that what they were doing was the right way to solve this problem and that this problem was a big problem that needed to be solved. And if you have that, just kind of almost like that level of conviction, it makes it easier to push through all bullshit you're going to hit in startup land. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I think actually this time around, I, I feel similarly where it's like, you know, I, our fathom has changed my life. Like I hate getting on zoom calls without it. I feel very stressed out when I don't. So like, I really believe <laughs> in what we're doing. And so it makes it easier to weather kind of the ups and downs of, you know, whatever nonsense startup land can throw your way. For, for sure. What, what are you guys doing? Just curious to, I guess, go to, and go to market strategy. Um, I mean, you know, I, I read it was like a free, you know, beta or is it just invite only right now? Or is it anyone like myself can jump in and test it out? At this point, everyone should be able to jump in and use it. If you can find that video, it's it's completely free. Um, you may get waitlisted depending upon, you know, we, we're, a lot of our traffic comes from the Zoom app store. Uh, I think when I last checked, we might be the number one app in the Zoom app store. Oh, cool. Um, so that, you know, anytime there's a new marketplace opens up, right? Like that's a huge distribution opportunity. And I think I mentioned earlier how like with user voice, I thought about building a product and building a team and build, and then finding the market. And now I think about 
finding the market, <laughs> finding the yeah, team. Dude. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. So in this case, really early on, we looked at this and said, okay, great. We already, we get the concept of what we're trying to build. How the hell are we going to get it out to people? And we kind of realized, you know what? I think there's a unique opportunity here to do something very bottom up, do a freemium model that hasn't really been done. You know, there are, there are some big folks in our space, like companies like Gong and Chorus, but they're doing these top down sales. So, you know, I think bottom up always kind of beats top down. It's kind of like scissors and paper. Um, mm-hmm. But really the X factor here was, you know, getting involved with the Zoom apps program, you know, getting involved with that launch and you know, obviously Zoom, you know, is dominant market player and being able to be hooked into their ecosystem is a huge benefit for us. Uh, like it just puts, really puts rocket boosters on what we're doing. And that's awesome. We, we left off, you know, with you talking about the partnership with the Zoom Apps Fund, and that's, that's quite exciting. Just, you know, me being a huge advocate of Zoom and, you know, a huge fan of Eric Wan at the same time. And, you know, growth that Zoom also had uh, last year and, and in general has just been mind boggling in itself. But, you know, you're, you're, you had mentioned that your company and product, they integrate with Zoom. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that you know, being a young upstart, like, uh, yours is, um, you know, you might see zoom and Slack and all those other players as, uh, the, the competition or, you know, potential, uh, competition with them having, you know, kind of the ability to create a product, you know, with, with all their money and all, <laughs> with all their tech and, and engineering, they, they could create something like yours. Uh, I wouldn't just say want to say yours, but anything really like that that comes out of the blue to to kind of just put an arm out and just resist the attrition or yep. uh, the switch of users. How, how did you, I guess, um, approach fundraising from Zoom? And if you don't mind telling us that cool story. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I think one of the things that's unique about Zoom and this, you know, they always say, uh, you know, startups and fall, the culture falls from the founder. Uh, and I have to say, like, I have not met or heard of anyone in startup land who is seemingly so universally kind of like really beloved as Eric Yuan from Zoom. Uh, just a re- like, you know, an engineer at heart, like super down to earth, super genuine. Um, and, you know, I've had not a ton of interactions with him, but like where I've had, I've been, I've been honestly blown away by like, how accessible and how like down to earth that guy is. And I think that's kind of, that is the culture of Zoom. They're for a large company, very accessible, very down to earth, great people to work with. Um, and I've now worked with yeah, people across product and, and also corp dev and stuff like that. Um, it is interesting, you know, like we got a lot of investors asking us about platform risk, right? Cause hmm. not only integrate with Zoom, we are hundred percent dependent on Zoom, right? We have fully hitched our wagon to, to theirs. <laughs> yeah. And, I could picture that, <laughs> you know, and then, you know, well, what happens if X, Y, and Z, da, da, da. and so it, it's a, it's a, it's a risk. It's a calculated risk. Um, someone else I talked to described it as, you know, like, yeah, startups are like kind of like mice, right. And you gotta be careful playing with elephants, right. Cause the elephant may not mean to kill you. It just may accidentally may step on you, right. Turning sure, around sure. or something. Right. And so um, that's true. Right. Probably if you work with any large company, but if you can manage to figure out, you know, where's the elephant going? And if you can kind of, you know, find, you know, figure out that you are in alignment. And I think their alignment with Zoom is very good, right? They're, they're wanting to build ecosystem. You know, they've got this big, they've got this really big valuation now. They've got this really big user base. And then, you know, the next step is for them to become really this, this really big platform, even more so than they are today. And part of that's building ecosystem, right? And so, you know, do you have to worry about them, you know, competing with the ecosystem? You know, Salesforce had a problem with this early on where they would often like take out the top companies in their ecosystem. Um, but then eventually learned that that's like not a great thing to do if you want to build an ecosystem. I think Zoom already knows that intuitively and Eric being kind of an engineer himself and again, being a genuine person, I don't, you know, there's no, right. yeah. you don't question their intentions there, right? You just be careful. You have to be thoughtful when like, is what I'm building like very horizontal and very generic? <laughs> right. So, yeah. you know, if you're building like, you know, a, 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 something that feels like a feature of zoom, I think ours is close, but not quite there. I mean, we are really for zoom power users, right. We're, you know, we're for the people that are doing zoom calls, you know, a couple of zoom calls a day, right. That's our target user. So we're, you know, and, and, you know, we're doing integrations with a lot of very business tools. We do, you know, Slack, HubSpot, you know, Salesforce, Notion, you know, stuff like that. So, we are specific enough that 
you think you would think, okay, you know, this is not going to be kind of a, just a horizontal feature that they'll add into their product. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, you know, the zoom apps fund investment and just the, the existence of the zoom apps fund in general signals to you how important it is to them to build that ecosystem. Right. And so, you know, we're very candid with them about our hopes and aspirations and they're very candid with us about their hopes and aspirations for the platform. And, you know, you can never, there's no promises in startup land, right? Who knows? Yeah. Maybe two years from now, something happens, there's a new CEO, a new direction. And they're like, great, we're going to go, you know, compete with Fathom because they're crushing it. Uh, hopefully that's I mean, oh, not a bad voice to be, but I, you know, it's, as, it's, we've de-risked it as much as one can really. Right. That's awesome. Um, I mean, you know, you have such a large depth and wisdom of the, I guess, the, the funding side of things and the venture side of things. Uh, one or two more questions here before we uh, let you get back to being a nomad is uh, what advice do you give to somebody who's, they have the product and they're ready to meet their first VC or, you know, angel investor? What, what do you uh, think is something like your two cents? And I, I mean, this doesn't necessarily need to be advice, but I guess just what is your your opinion or how do you feel about fundraising and things like that? I, you know, I, I haven't done it like relative to a lot of people I know, right. I have not done a ton of fundraising, right. Cause user voice was basically a profitable company for a while, for a while. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, but now I've had two very, you know, we think we've raised about 9 million with user voice and, you know, I can't say exactly how much we've, we haven't disclosed how much yeah, we've true, made with Fathom, right. but it's, it's, I'll tell you, it's over one and less than 10, right? So like we, <laughs> we've, we've raised money with both of those. Um, and obviously the experience is very different, right? And I think probably the most important thing to, to remember with, when raising money is no one wants to invest when you really need the money. <laughs> like people only want to invest when like you don't really need the money. So you need to make sure it seems like, well, I can, I can get the money from anywhere, right? Or I don't really need it. Right. Uh, it, those are really the two strategies. Like I, I can do oh, without man, it or <laughs> I can, you know, I've got to, I feel confident enough. I can project enough confidence in my pitch and my product that like, well, if not you, someone else is going to give me this money. So it's really a question of whether you want to be. In <laughs> um, there is, I, I will say the thing that is, I'm trying to think of one of the most like, un, like the most unintuitive things, um, probably the most like unintuitive thing is that like no data is often better than some data. So you know, there's a lot of folks that will, you know, it's like the classic thing, like you, you launch, you know, you had a good first like launch, you had a good spike, you go to some investors and they're like, oh, that looks good. You know, great. Come back in three months when you've got more, right? Data. Mm-hmm. You're, you're almost better off like, you know, raising money before the launch on the promise of the launch, right? Than getting to actual <laughs> data because then everyone just wants to sit around and wait, right? And see what, what's going to, what's going to turn up, right? And the, you know, your initial data in anything, whether it's user growth or retention or, um, um, or, or monetization is, is never flattering in the beginning. Right. So you almost always want to like raise slightly ahead of a milestone. And then as soon as you hit the milestone, right. Uh, and that's something we've actually done with Fathom is we've raised almost every three to four months as we've hit it, like over the wow. last year with a new, when we, when we hit a new milestone and kind of like, okay, we hit this milestone. Let's, let's go out to, to the market and raise a little money. The other thing I'd say in general is just like, I think, you know, especially if you're a first timer, things right. like Y Combinator serve to solve one of the biggest problems. And that is just the kind of a who the fuck are you problem, right? <laughs> you know, no one wants yeah, to, man. no one really wants to invest in unknown quantities outside of crypto. <laughs> uh, <laughs> where, we, where we'll invest in all sorts of unknown quantities, but outside of crypto, people want to invest in, you know, people they know. And right, if you're getting started in your career, you're not someone anyone knows. Right. Yeah. Uh, and your, your mom is not a good reference for a VC. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that's, that's the whole benefit of almost, it's, it's again, kind of a union or accreditation, right? It's an early social signal. And so I think it's really important to look like all the other investments, right? You want right. to, you want to look like the, what all the hot companies look like. What do the hot companies look like? Well, you know, they, they raise money quickly. They've got good teams, but they like go through Y Combinator and they do this and they do that to do that. Right. And so like, you know, it's, investors are all pattern matching, right? So you want to make sure your pattern matches the standard thing that most people want to invest in as much as possible. Man, I love that advice. You know, I think that's, it's hard. I mean, it's seeable. It's just hard to put into words. And I think you did a really good job of putting it in sentences. <laughs> I also um, think, I think funding is like, you know, I used to do a couple of different talks about like startups and, and, you know, what it's like. And invariably the, the hottest topic is always funding, right? Yeah. I think, and, uh, and, and I think, you know, honestly, funding is the like virginity of, of entrepreneurship, 
right? Like getting funded is the losing <laughs> your virginity of entrepreneurship, right? Everyone wants to talk about it until, until like it happens, right? And then once it happens, you don't really, like it just becomes very like rote very quickly, right? Sure. <laughs> um, and, you know, like everyone who hasn't been funded, like, like, you know, it's like, how do I do it? How do I get there? And then once it happens, even like when you do get your first funding around, by the time you actually get the money in the bank, you will be completely unexcited about it almost every time. Because hmm. uh, by the time you get the money in the bank, you've, you knew it was coming, right? You'd already kind of like, it, it, there's no like someone's going to surprise you out of a field and slap you with a million dollars. You know, you're going right. to have a good meeting and another good meeting and you're like feel confident, like slowly going to build up like you're boiling the frog. But I, you know, I think the one thing I always say to people is like, you know, I love fundraising. Uh-huh. I love, I love raising money because it's very rare that you can get smart, accomplished people to take a real critical look at what you're doing and give you really critical feedback, right? That is actually a very rare resource. Most it's because no, no one's best interest, your friends, it's not in their best interest to like tell you your thing sucks, right? Like most people are not going to tell you your thing sucks and most VCs won't say it outright, but they'll say it with their actions. Right. And they'll put, you know, and then with questions they ask. And so honestly, fundraising early in some ways, you know, maybe don't go after the, you know, if your goal is to get funded by Sequoia and entries and don't go pitch them first and foremost, oh, right. Yeah, go pitch yeah. to someone like, you know, someone else. And see what they have to say and see if they lean in, see if they get excited. If they don't, great. They're like stress testing your startup for you in a way that you or your co-founder really can't do, right? Again, YC kind of performs this action as well, but third parties poking holes in your startup is like a very valuable resource. So, you know, sometimes I would say like, ask for money, get advice, ask for advice and you get money. And so, you know, whether you get advice or money, either one <laughs> of them are valuable to you at an early phase, right? That's awesome. Yeah. Um, one last one, or, I promise. One of the last two more things here is, uh, sure. how would you, I guess, just going along the theme of the podcast with you know startup mindsets. How would you vocalize your start your startup mindset? And what I mean by that is just how do you understand startups and like your approach to building um, great products, teams, and companies. It, you know, I. A couple of a number of ways I could take that, but I think the I'll stick to the most important one, I think, which is the mindset, right? Uh-huh. There's a lot of people that are like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing a startup that's so risky and amazing and scary. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> not, at least not to me, right? Like, obviously, now at this point, I'm fortunate enough that I've had some success, so it gets a little less risky. But even uh, you know, when I was first starting off, it never felt risky or scary. Um, and I think that's about kind of your mindset, right? And I think. Before I ever started user voice, I had this really interesting experience. Um, you know, I worked with the company Y Combinator. We ended up selling the company on eBay. Not to eBay, but on eBay. <laughs> this was Justin Kahn from Twitch's idea. Uh, and it's hilarious. It like sold for like a quarter million dollars. It's a, it's a whole other can of worms. It's a really funny story. You should sure. read about it. Sure. Uh, but what that did for me is it set me up with like a really good freelancing career where I actually could freelance either as an engineer or a designer and make decent amount of money. And I remember like living out of like this small apartment in Montana I was living at the time and just being like, wow, okay. Like I can always probably, I've got enough skills here and now I have enough visibility thanks to the exit that I can always fall back on having, you know, a livable wage, right. Which again, not many people can say that. So mm-hmm. if you have, you know, technical skills, designer engineering, you always can get, you know, probably hired in a, in a, in a minute, right. Like if you have some people that will vouch for you, have seen your work. And the second thing that happened to me, I mentioned it's kind of happened in the middle of starting user voice, but you know, my girlfriend and I broke up and I decided to like live out of her car and really I didn't live in the car. I just couch surfed and kept all my stuff in the car. Oh, and nice. I actually found that a really freeing experience, right? It was really freeing to just be like, oh shit, I don't need almost anything. I've got two suitcases in the trunk of a car. <laughs> I've got this car and I'm good, right? And again, I had this other backstop of if I ever want to, I can break the glass and pull down the fire alarm and go back to a steady job. Right. Yeah. So now I realize <laughs> I could always go back to a steady job and gosh, I can live very minimally and be fine and be happy. And once I had that, those two things were very freeing and allowed me to have this mindset of like, it's all upside, right? Like I'd rather pursue, especially early in my career in my twenties, I'd rather pursue the like high upside thing doing a startup. Mm-hmm. Even if it fails, you tend to, I see, even when it seems to fail for people, as long as they're kind of doing it the right way, they tend to fail up anyways. Right. Someone noticed your product, even if you didn't get funded or it didn't work out. Someone saw your product. Someone was probably impressed by it or was impressed by your, your gumption or your, the balls on you or whatever to go do the thing. Um, And so good things will happen. Right. And so 
but it comes from, you have to have this mindset of cool. It's all upside, which I think is why it's harder for people to do startups later in their career. Cause they, you know, they got a wife and they got a kids, they got a house and all this stuff. And it makes it really hard. Like, oh gosh, like now it is risky <laughs> to go do a startup. Right. You're right. And so I think that mindset of it's all upside is really important. I mean, I honestly think this is the greatest job game, on earth. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I actually honestly think of startups as a video game. Mm-hmm. Like I love SimCity and I feel like Fathom is playing SimCity, right? And every day I wake up and it's like, great. What are we going to fix today? You know, uh, the traffic is part of town is bad. Or, you know, we got to rezone this part. Like you just <laughs> get to constantly tinker with all different parts of, of the city and just make it, you know, one to 2% better every day. And it's with that mindset, I just feel like it's, I, I love to wake up in the morning uh, and be like, let's jump back into it because it is just, it's the most fulfilling video game you can play. Man, that is, that is some awesome advice. I, I think that, that, uh, you know, is, is a, you know, a, a lot really does resonate with me and, uh, you know, it's invaluable, man. I, I mean, can't, can't, uh, can't get around that and that. And I think that, uh, it is, you know, really key to, to have a healthy approach like yours. And I, f- I find that fascinating too, you know, having been a couch surfer and nomad and, and being able to create a company at the same time, I think that's rather difficult <laughs> to do both at the same time. But I think, you know, you, you, you had shown that you can have fun with it. And honestly, just uh, if you, you know, have a hundred percent conviction, you can be successful. And, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I think it's great. Well, yeah, I think, man. Honestly, <laughs> the, biggest, the biggest thing that kills startups is distraction. Right? Uh-huh. Like yeah. I was in New York last week and all my friends joked that I was like, I was like, uh, I was like, I don't think we'd invest in any founders in New York. New York's just too distracting and fun and cool. Right. <laughs> it's like, you know, early days of user voice, I was in like a house in Santa Cruz. There's like nothing to do but work. Right. And even now when I'm traveling around and I'm in these great places, but often I'm just sitting in a room all day working. Right. So it's kind of a little ridiculous, but like distraction is the only thing that really kills you. Right. And so in some ways, simplifying your life and even traveling, as long as you can do that without distraction, it works really, really well. I love it. You know, um, how can how can people find out more about Fathom that video and and I guess yourself and how can they become users, Absolutely. testers, yeah. and things like that? Yeah, uh, Fathom.video uh, is is the website. And go on there again. It's a self service sign up. Takes about two minutes. Uh, you know, and it's again, it's completely free. So would love anyone listening to this to give a shot. Especially if you're, you know, you're in that, that startup, that early startup mindset and you're, you know, grinding through customer calls, you're trying to share your team or just remind yourself of what the hell did I talk to you about everyone about? (laughs) Uh, I, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm also on Twitter, RR White at Twitter. Uh, Feel free to reach out to me on probably more LinkedIn than Twitter. Uh, And I'd be happy to, to help however I can. Thanks, Rich. Uh, this has been an honor, man, and I can't say enough about you know the the work that you've done over the years, and, and I guess just this whole conversation has been a, a great learning experience for me as well. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks again for having me on. Hey, that's another episode of Sir Mindset's podcast. Thanks y'all for listening. Shout out to y'all um, uh, for you know messing with us for forty episodes deep. This ain't the end of us. Uh, and yeah, definitely tell a friend, tell your brother, tell your sister. Uh, about this podcast and um, yeah I mean cheers to entrepreneurship and you know people uh, grinding um, on their own ideas I uh, hope you got a lot of value of this episode um, and yeah give us a follow at Startmises Pod on Instagram as well as uh, Startmises on Twitter and uh, yeah have a great rest of it <laughs> peace